Well, again, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to ask you to go to John chapter 14 with me. John chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 15 to 21. And I have to tell you, this is a loaded passage of Scripture. In fact, as I studied for this particular passage, I was telling the guys, I read Puritans and Reformers. I read commentators that are both dead and alive. And one thing they all had in common is, on average, most of them either wrote or preached three to four chapters or sermons on this exact same passage that I'm going to try and do in 30 plus minutes. So pray for me. All right. This is going to be a 30,000 foot view of this, but I'm counting on the fact that we're going to continue to walk through the rest of John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And as you know, my series on the gospel of John has been called Conversations with Christ because this is the one gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is the one that records more of conversations. And today I want to look at how we can be comforted by the comforter. So now that you've got your Bibles there, I want to start by reminding you of an old saying. There's an old saying that says, he was a day late and a dollar short. And if you know anything about the Orthodox calendar, we have our 365-day calendar, but we celebrate very little that's on that religiously. But if you were following it religiously last week, last Sunday was actually called Pentecost Sunday. That was the Sunday on the calendar where a lot of the church world would celebrate and remember that this was the Sunday that Pentecost or the Holy Spirit came. So when we remember what happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon those 120 that were in the upper room, and you can read about it there and I didn't cover that last week. I will cover it this week. <laughs> All right, well, sort of, sort of. Our passage today is actually the historical moment when Jesus promises what will happen in Acts chapter 2. And by the way, it's still happening. It's still happening. I don't want to lose that. We're going to consider and study the third promise that we find in Acts chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, that Jesus makes to the disciples. And if you remember last week, Jesus promised in verses 13 and 14 that the disciples would do greater works than he did. And we learned last week that that doesn't mean miracles, that means the gospel. The greatest work that you and I can do is propagate the gospel. But he also promised that they would have a powerful relationship with God in prayer. And we learned about that it's not about name it and claim it. It's not about a prosperity gospel. Rather, it's about Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name. That's not a trick or a formula. We pray in Jesus' name because we want what Jesus wants. We learned about it's about submission and trust. Jesus promises we will have power, that we will have all that we need to do what he's asking us, because ultimately, as we're going to see today, because we have him in the Holy Spirit. At the end of chapter 13, if you remember again, it was a rough patch of scripture and time in the disciples' lives. Jesus is about 12 to 18 hours away from Calvary. Judas, as you remember, has already left to betray Jesus, and such by association 
the lives and the safety and well-being of the other 11 disciples is really threatened. Jesus has just told them that he's going to leave and that Peter, along with the rest of them, even though Peter would run his mouth, that they're so weak that they're not going to be able to stand in the face of the coming struggle. And indeed, all of them will fail. And then, in chapter 14, verse 1, he follows up that trifecta of gloom with, let not your hearts be troubled. And that's the backdrop of promise one. You'll do greater works than I have. Promise two, you'll have a powerful prayer life. And now, promise three, I'm going to send you a comforter. And of course, you and I would probably re react the way our Bible and the Apostle John puts it, that Thomas and Philip have questions. Thomas says, how can this be? Where are we, how do we know where you're going? Philip even goes further and says, well, listen, if you just give us a glimpse of yourself as God, then we'll believe. And of course, you all know what Jesus' answered to that is, I'm going to send another, i.e., I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So yes, today in a Baptist church, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. There you go. Little bit of life. Now, albeit it's a week, I'm, I'm a week late uh, of Pentecost Sunday, but I'm thrilled to walk us all through John chapter 14, 15 to 21, because this is where we will find comfort from God, our comforter. Now, I know there's lots of stereotypes when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the modern church. The reason why Matt went, woo, is because Baptists are accused of being dead with doctrine. I think I've told you this. My parents may be watching online. When I visited my dad's church the last time and my dad had me preach, one of the guys that attended my dad's church grew up in a Pentecostal tradition. So after I preached and I was back at the foyer at the door greeting people, he had this very evil grin on his face, like he wanted to tell me something. And when he got to me, he said, hey, minister, can you handle a joke? And I said, fire away. Because to be honest, I thought he was going to give me a, a Newfoundland joke. But he didn't. He said, did you hear what happened at the Baptist church down the street? And I went, no. He said, yeah, mid-service, a fella had a heart attack and died. And they called the ambulance, and they took out 13 people before they figured out who the dead guy was. And then he died laughing at his own joke. And that's the accusation made against us often as Baptists, isn't it? We give lip service to the Holy Spirit, but often we portray this idea that we love our doctrine and yet we're kind of emotionless or we're very analytical or very academic. Pentecostals are often being accused of being obsessed with the Holy Spirit or being led by their emotions. And so everything for them, often the caricature or the stereotype is Baptists are dead, but Pentecostals are too much alive. And so when I grew up, I heard a lot of people say, man, if I could get a guy with the heart of a Pentecostal, the head of a Baptist, and the feet of a JW, you'd have a great Christian. All right? The reality is, though, in 2021, there's a lot of confusion and a lack of clarity about the Holy Spirit and the role of the third person of the Trinity in our lives. And I believe that's tragic. Our music team sang, I believe. They sang the creed. I believe in God our Father. 
I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the three in one. This is what we believe. Here at Calvary Baptist Church, unapologetically, unashamedly, we believe in God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, equal in value, power, and glory. And I actually believe in John chapters 13 to 17, it actually teaches us three things. It teaches us God's relationship with his people. It teaches us his people's relationship with each other. And finally, it teaches us how God's mission is now our mission. And that's why, by the way, just about every week I've preached to you from this gospel, I've always read John's purpose statement at some point in every sermon. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But what is written for us today, John chapter 14, 15 to 21, this is written that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let me ask you this. What does John mean when he says that if we believe, then we will have life in his name? Well, I actually believe John chapter 14 to 16 provides the answer and John chapter 18 to 20 provides the proof or the example. In other words, the passage before us, which I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of, actually explains what the Christian life is supposed to be. So listen closely, closely, namely this, every one of you, the youngest to the oldest, we, if you are a Christian, and I don't just mean as an adjective, I mean as a noun, a real relationship with God, that we have this relationship through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, our advocate, who guides us as our indwelling and eternal presence of God. And if you will get that, believe it, and apply it to your life, that is how you and I can have a calm heart. We can calm our troubled hearts. And we can have somewhere to go when our heart is troubled. So before I read the word of God, for those of you here, and for those of you tuning in online, just take a couple of minutes right now and start and think about something. What are you struggling with right now? Now, what's heavy on your heart or your mind? How are you feeling? Really? How are you doing emotionally or physically or relationally? Be honest right now. How are you doing Spiritually. When you were asked questions like this, every one of you, what face jumps to your mind? What situation do you instantly think about? What causes you to worry right now? Be honest, what's bugging you? What has caused you to lose sleep this week? What occupies your mind? Or rather, who occupies 
your mind. If I were to ask you to think this through and write it down and being honest, no one else could see, just you, how would you answer the question, how's your relationship with God? What you say you believe about God, but you struggle to live it out, or you don't know, or you don't know if you should care, or you're confused, or you feel like the world give you, gives you all kinds of options, or are you having trouble right now believing or trusting God? Now, every one of you are in a various state of remembrance and awkwardness and self-evaluation when you get asked questions like this. The truth is, tragically, we don't ask each other these types of questions enough. We don't have friendships and marriages and family and church where we can actually ask these types of questions and feel safe to be that honest and that vulnerable. I want you to hear me now in just a few minutes as an overview, trying to whet your appetite. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. Actually, these chapters are for you in how you answer those questions. And I would suggest to anyone and every one of you, if you really want to wrestle through your emotional health, your physical health, your intellectual health, your spiritual health, your relational health, read John chapter 13 to 17, especially 14 to 16. Read it often. Go back and read John chapter 1 verses 1 to 18. Do this once a month, once a week. Do it every day for the month of June. Get familiar with this and you will find that your life, your perspective, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings are going to change. And see if you can pick it up as I read it for us this morning. Let's take our Bibles and go to John 15, sorry, 14, beginning in verse 15. And I'm going to quickly walk you through this this morning. The Apostle John writes, and he allows you and I to almost voyeuristically catch a glimpse. We, we are listening in. We're like fly on the wall, listening into this conversation between Jesus and the 11 disciples in the upper room, literally not even a day away from Calvary. And Jesus says, finishing up his response to Philip, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, let me read that again. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Some of you, depending on your translation, might have advocate, counselor. There's a whole host of ways this can be uh, translated. The ESV yet says another helper to be with you forever. And then he explains who this helper is. Even verse 17, the spirit of truth. And then he tells us a bit about the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Why? Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But then he says to the 11, you know him. How? For he dwells with you and will be in you. And if you write in your Bibles or highlight, highlight this verse. 
Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Contemplate that, every one of you, in a world of loneliness, in a world of confusion about value and purpose and acceptance and belonging, when we are obsessed with our DNA and, you know, Ancestry.com and who am I and where did I come from and who were my parents and what is my purpose, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. And he follows that up with, I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Why? Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. By the way, that is not a tongue twister. That's not one of those things that can you say this. It's not a riddle. Basically, Jesus has just described the Trinity. I am in my Father. You are in me. And I am in you. And then he finishes it up with, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he or she it is who loves me. That might sound very familiar to verse 15. It's supposed to. These are the bookends of this paragraph. And he or she who loves me will be loved by my Father. Watch this Trinitarianness again. By my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him or her. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So let's break this down, okay? 15 to 21. Big picture. I want you to notice Jesus asks you and I this morning here and online. This is the question, verse 15. What is your response to the love of God? What is your response to the love of Jesus? What is your response to the love of God? How do you respond? He actually begins in verse 15 and ends in verse 21 with the very same idea. It's the nature of their relationship. And you guys have lived this out. Any one of you that have parents have had that moment when your child has said, Mommy, Daddy, do you love me? Or parents, when you have said to your teenager or your young adult, do you love your mom and dad? Husbands and wives have known it when you've said, do you love me? I just want to know if you love me. Some of you that are dating have known when you finally dated long enough and you finally got nervous enough and yet courageous enough, you were going to float one of those I love yous out there and hoping that it'll get returned because there's nothing like the big wet tamale of an I love you and it's not returned, isn't it? All of you that are dating know the awkward nervousness of that. Jesus says, what's your response to my love? You see, what he's explaining is the nature of their relationship with him and with God the Father is actually found in love and obedience. John, the apostle, to this point in writing this up to chapter 14, has really centered on the love of God for the world, John 3.16, and the love of Jesus for his people. He is really focused on how Christ has taken care of his disciples. But in this passage, in verse 15, there's a reversal. Jesus emphasizes our love for Christ, thus our love for God. So the idea is, Jesus is basically saying, you know I love you. Let me ask, do you trust me? 
Jesus has just said back in verse 6, I am the way to God as Father. He has said, I am the way of truth to God as Father. I am the way to life with God as our Father. So let me ask us all this morning, do you believe that? Amen? That was weak. So if that's our creed, as the music team saying, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Christ the Son. If that's so, then what should our, or what could our, or what must be our response to this reality when you just live life here in, 20, in May 30th of 2021? See, Jesus begins in verse 15, and this is what a true disciple looks like. And then he's going to end it in verse 21. He'll expand on it even further. And you've got to realize he says this, as these disciples know, Judas has just left. Jesus knows he's going to betray him. Thomas is confused. Philip is demanding answers. And yet Jesus says fellowship with God, a relationship with God is actually a relationship of love. Love that is shown in obedience it's shown in obedience to Christ. It's fueled by his love from a heart of love and because of his obedience for us. And you'll notice it's not an emotional love. It's not this sappy, emotional, we watch too much television and movies where there's a soft sunset and soft music and, mu and stuff like that. And, oh, I love you. And, oh, I love you. And all this kind of stuff. I, I love it when comedians talk about this, right? When people say, you know, I love you. Uh, with, uh, I would climb the highest mountain, right, again, and I would swim the deepest sea, and yet I can't take out the trash for you. I can't clean up after myself, or, hey, man, how about putting the toilet seat down? Can you love your wife enough to do that? Right? I, I love you. I would do any, I, you know, Brian Adams, I, everything I do, I do it for you. I die for you, and most people would say, Will you just listen to me and have a conversation? Do you love me enough to do that? And this is what Jesus is getting at. Notice with me, it's not just not an emotional love. It's not a romantic love. It's not even a sentimental love. It's actually a moral love. It's our moral response. And what I mean is we are moved to obey Jesus, not just from our emotions, but rather from worship. That's why David said in Psalm 139, he said, search me and know me. But he said before that, I hate sin with a perfect hatred. I've often wondered why David was called a man after God's own heart. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He disobeyed Jesus often. I believe the reason he was called a man after God's own heart is because he wasn't afraid to call sin, sin. Psalm 51, against you and you only, O God, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. In sin, my mother even conceived me. You see, I think Paul understood, David understood what it was to morally love God. It's to be morally transformed. Remember back in John chapter 1 in the introduction? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so you need to see this morning, genuine love for Jesus manifests itself in obedience to his commands. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, the one who loves Jesus, submit your desires to what God wants. 
<coughs> excuse me, were basically saying, I love you so much, I want what you want. Now we get glimpses of this as parents and as people that are married, right? One of the ways I knew that I was going to marry Debbie, some of you know my story, many of you don't. I'm hesitant to always tell it. I packed an awful lot of sin in the first half of my life, the first quarter of my life, running away from home. I was quite rebellious. I did a lot of things I'm ashamed of and embarrassed by. I garnered a reputation by the time I was 16 as a rebellious teenager and then came back. My parents, my father loved me through that. And I started dating Debbie and Debbie quite literally was an instrument of God to change my life. And I remember that I was feeling very close to her and yet feeling very vulnerable and felt that my life had not been fully open to her. And I took her to Barring Park when we were 19 and I can take you to the very spot I did it where I sat her down and I said, I need to tell you a story about a little boy. And that day I told her my entire life from five years old to the moment that we were there in which I didn't leave out any details. I just told her everything about myself, stuff she had never heard, stuff I had never admitted, everything that had ever gone wrong or I had done wrong in my life. And I remember that day, and I know this is embarrassing her because she looked up at me with this massive tear that went down over her cheek and she said, I love you. And if you ask my father, who's probably watching, I knew that day I would marry her because it was the first time in my life I knew what it meant to be completely vulnerable and have someone say, I know all of that and I love you. And so because of that, I can tell you I am emotional about my wife. I am sentimental about my wife. I am romantic about my wife. But I can tell you that from that day to this day, I am morally compelled to please her because she knows everything about me and loves me. And I can't help. I have tried to spend all of my life responding to her love. Now, are you doing that with God? Are you doing that with God? Up to this point, Jesus' love has been on display. Jesus has come to the disciples. He's called them. He's discipled them. He's cared for them. He's empowered them. He's taught them. He's calmed them. He's protected them. He's provided for them. And just like Jesus' response to Philip in verse 9 the sentence structure is not meant to be read as if Jesus is threatening them. He's not doubting their love. He's actually defining it. John 14, 15 is the person who loves God responds to that love with trust and obedience. Which is why, guys and gals, ladies and gentlemen, audience, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Do you know how many times you sing hymns and you never engage your brain as to what you're saying? Just think about that hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. Watch. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Second verse, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away not a doubt or a fear not a sigh nor a tear can abide while we trust 
and obey. And watch how it ends. That in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says, we will do. Where he sins, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. That's what verse 15 is all about. The giving of the Holy Spirit is not dependent on our obedience. Rather, the Spirit gives us the strength to obey. So notice now verses 16 and 17 and 18, because now Jesus promises to ask for our comfort. He asks us about our love, and, and I know it's not a condition, because the very next thing he does is promise to send us a comforter. That's his next very promise. Notice what he says he will do. I love these next three verses. Verses 16, 17, and 18, because they offer so much comfort. They offer so much hope. They offer so much joy. Notice how personal the promises are. In verse 16, I will ask the Father. Later in the same verse, we read that God will answer this request. And then he says, he will give you another helper. And in verse 17, this helper is the spirit of truth who is both with us and in us. And then verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And notice the end of the promise, I will come to you. Now, how many of you have thought and rested on those promises as you have wrestled with your life in the past seven days? Versus how much you and I have been worried over, anxious for, obsessed on, tried to control our environment instead of believing this is my destiny. This is my reality. This is both the same and different from verse 3. In essence, Jesus is saying, when I'm away from you, I'm actually still with you. You will never have to fend for yourself. In verse 16, look, he has an answer to Jesus. A prayer to the Father. In verse 16, he's going to send the comforter, the helper, the advocate. In verse 16, that comforter, helper, helper permanently dwells with the believer. It's the spirit of truth. He is, sorry, the spirit of truth. He is unknown to the world, but he will dwell with us. And I will tell you, I can't have the time to go into it because we're going to go over it over the next three chapters. But I would say to you, don't stress over, is the Holy Spirit the comforter, the advocate, the helper, or whatever. I think the answer to all of that is yes, yes, and yes. Stop worrying about the meaning of the word. See it as a title of God. So often, even for our church, we have elders. And some of you even here right now are going, I have no idea what that is. Because some of you are used to the word pastor. And then some of you have heard the word reverend. Or some of you have heard the word uh, shepherd. Or these things. All of these words actually are adjectives that describe one office. And so when you're hearing and you're reading in your Bible about God the Holy Spirit is the comforter, he's the helper, he's the advocate, all of that is true. But stop getting lost in the focus on the one thing. Jesus represents believers before the Father. The Holy Spirit represents God to you and I as the believers. This is what Jesus is saying. And this is why I want to break this down for you. God, the Holy Spirit, think about it. The English word that we've transliterated from the Greek means paraclete. And the reason why I don't think we should focus just on comforter, because it doesn't fit at all. 
Helper fails to describe the Spirit's ministry to sinners. Counselor fits the Spirit as guide and teacher, but does not fit well when the Spirit's convicting presence to the world. Advocate is actually probably the best, but that still has problems because we think in terms of an advocate, it's a legal term that means a lawyer. And so often we think, well, either I need a defense attorney or I want a, a prosecuting attorney, and none of that is completely good. The actual word itself means to come alongside. So I want you to grab hold of that. Jesus says, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send God back to you, and God will come alongside you. So John says the spirit is the another paraclete. And so I would venture to say God is our advocate. God the Father is our advocate. God the Son is our advocate. And God the Holy Spirit is our advocate. Jesus is comforting his disciples by assuring them that they did not need to be troubled at his leaving because God was still coming back to them. That's why the Apostle Paul said he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. And notice, I want you to see three things in Verses 16, 17, and 18. The Holy Spirit is still to come. I will ask the Father, and he will send. And the reason is that because Jesus still has to go die and rise from the dead. Notice the Holy Spirit has a special relationship with us. Without exception, everywhere in the New Testament, the functions credited to the Holy Spirit, as elsewhere in all the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, the, the disciples, the followers of God, are granted the ability to know and relate to the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. He will guide you and teach you and disciple you. He bears witness to Christ. He prays to the Father on your behalf. Listen, have you not cried out for your marriage? Cried out for your children? Have you been in so much pain or so much fear or so much frustration you want to go to God and you're like, I don't even know what to pray. And that's when Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit to you. And when you don't know how to pray, he will pray for you. If you leave with nothing today, leave knowing this. God, the Father, is not just our Father. God, the Son, is not just the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and represents us in the glories of the gospel. Then God, the Holy Spirit, actually explains you and me to the Trinity. Be comforted by that. You'll notice, too, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of the gospel, and of judgment. And that's why Hebrews 4 tells us what it does, that the word of God is a living book. This is not just a book, it's the book. It's a living book. This is where the spirit of God, this is why I'm desperate for you to read your Bible and pray. Because when you read the Bible, God talks to you. And when you pray, God hears you. And notice in verse 18, 19, and 20, Jesus promises to transform our relationship to God for eternity. Now, I don't think we should stop and think about verse 18. We should stop for a while and think about verse 18. How do you, th how do you think the disciples reacted when they heard Jesus say, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. 
when Jesus had just said, I'm going to leave you and prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Could anything be more wonderful? God has never, God will never let go of any of his children. So if I asked you back earlier, how close to God do you feel? You know what the answer is? Doesn't matter. Because he won't leave you. He won't forsake you. It's never been about your feelings. It's been about his power and glory and strength and he cannot lie and I would submit when you think this way it will actually start to change your feelings and then look at what he says in verses 19 to 20 he says I love how he puts this in verse 19 yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you also will live in that day you will know that I am in my father and you and me and I and you so what's he talking about here because there's three options is Jesus saying so I'm going to go but you're going to see me again that means when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 that's when you'll see me or does he mean I'm going to go and you're going to see me again and that's at the end of time when Jesus returns for eternity or does it actually mean I'm going to go like in 18 hours from now I'm going to be killed I'm going to die, you're going to put me in a grave, and I'm going to be gone, but on Sunday morning, I'm going to rise from the dead, and guess what? I'm going to appear to Mary and Magdalene, and then I'm going to go get Peter and John, and they're going to come, and then I'm going to appear to them in the upper room, not once, but twice, and then I'm going to meet them on, on a hillside in Galilee, and then I'm going to be ascended before them. This is what most commentators tell us that he means. He's telling them, look, I'm going to go but you're going to see me. The world won't see me. He doesn't appear to lost people. He appears to them. And so he's talking to them. And then in verse 20, on that day, that's actually a really special uh, expression. In the, in the Old Testament, on that day is almost apocalyptic. It means when something magnificent is going to happen. He's basically saying, look, I'm going to inaugurate the kingdom the resurrection, the world-changing event, and when it arrives, God's people will know. And this refers not to just intellectual perception. This means you'll know. So every one of the disciples will be protected because they will not be alone, which, by the way, is you and I. You're never alone. You're not alone in the fight for your marriage. You're not alone in the fight for your kids. You're not alone in the fight for friendships. You're not alone trying to make it through school or life or trying to find it. You're not alone when you've struggled through trauma or setback. You're not alone when you have failed and you're embarrassed. You're not alone when you're frustrated and feel like I can't measure up and everybody looks at me weird and I'm going to be known as this type of person now. No, God says, no, I died for that. I paid for it. And so in verse 21, Jesus points out the depth of our relationship with God. Notice what he says. Whoever has my commandments and keep them. Is that a condition for salvation? I think you already know what you're supposed to say here, right? Absolutely not. If someone said to me, in order to get saved, do I need to forgive my sister? What's the answer? 
What's the answer? No. No. In order to get saved, do I need to stop being an alcoholic? Nope. In order to get saved, do I need to stop? Nope. But when you get saved, your whole life changes. Because if you've known forgiveness, then you'll want to forgive. See, it's not a condition of your salvation. It's a result of. And I would say even here at Calvary, God forgive me because so many of you have come from different traditions. So many of you have thought, I've got to either clean up my life enough to be acceptable to God or you've got saved and now you think, I've got to keep my life clean enough so God still wants me. Now follow this. It's impossible to love God without truly living this out in our daily life. As we love and obey, we enjoy God more. It's the very act of obedience. The love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be enjoyed, and we will know Him. That's why He says, you'll know that I am in the Father, and I am in you, and you are in me. One of the people, people ask me all the time about my relationship with Debbie, because I, I know I embarrass her a lot. I talk about it a lot. The reason my marriage is what it is with Debbie is because I spend time with her. I love her. I want to be around her. I want to know what she wants. I want to know how she thinks. She's the one I run to in all of the ups and downs of my life. And trust me, there's been a lot. There's been two safe places I could always go. To Debbie and God. And my parents, I might add. And so for those of you that are parents with kids that are struggling, those of you that are parents and you're struggling with how you think your kids will turn out, you know the greatest gift you can give your children? A great view of God and that it's always safe to come to you. And for those of you here that are young people and maybe you're struggling with your relationship with your parents, just remember that your mom and dad, sinners, they're not your savior. But it's actually a lot safer to go to your parents than you ever believe it is. And this is what is here. Now put yourself at the, as the recipient of this. How do I wrap up this sermon? Can you imagine any more comforting and amazing verses than these? I'm going to send you myself. God has promised to love these 11 men, to love them, never leave them. Over the next 18 hours, he is going to display this love in the greatest act of sacrifice in the history of humanity. And he says, I'm going to come back to you. I will not leave you orphans. He has come to them, chosen them, used them, trained them, protected them, exampled life, love to them. He's answered their questions, calmed their fears. Jesus has empowered them, corrected them, shown them, and now will lay down his life for them. And do these verses not stir confidence in us too? Put yourself as the recipients of these words. Take whatever it is you're presently feeling, whatever you're facing or whatever you're struggling with, and hear Jesus say to you, I love you. I will give you myself. I am preparing a place for you. I will bring you to me for eternity. Oh, and by the way, I won't leave you. I'll guide you and change you and protect you. I'll always be there to talk to, and I'll talk to you, and I'll give you wisdom and answers. And here's all he says. Do you trust me? Do you trust me that I'll never lie to you? Do you trust me that I'll never ask you to do anything that's not for your benefit? Notice I didn't say that I'll never ask anything that's too hard for you. He will. 
But even when it's too hard for you, it's still for your benefit. Because I say to these, God will say to you, oh, you'll be scared. There'll be times in your life when it will hurt. You'll go through times of confusion. And this is why I love the Bible. Jesus tells us that he loves us and that he won't leave us. And we need to hear this. Because every one of you here and online longs for love. Acceptance. The issues we have is that we so quickly forget that God loves us. We so quickly get caught up in our lives, in our circumstances. We start to listen to our own internal dialogue. We listen to the culture. We see as issues running at us at full speed and we panic and we try to run and hide or protect ourselves or defend ourselves. And let me explain. Many of you have laughed at my expense because I've been honest and and very vulnerable in front of you and you should have loved me and been patient for me, but you've laughed at me when I tell you I'm afraid of dogs. Yeah, Paul is one of them that just laughed out loud just then. And it doesn't matter if it's a big, giant Rottweiler or a Chihuahua the size of a large rat. I'm afraid of it. I go to Scott and Lori's and they've got a little Chihuahua that I think I could blow on and knock over, but I am always aware of where that dog is because I'm afraid of dogs. And so let me tell you how this goes. When I was a young teenage boy, like 14 years old, I had a paper route in Kilbride, and I used to have to deliver the papers down Old Bay Bulls Road, and there was one home up on a hill, and it was a two-apartment home, and the downstairs had a German Shepherd. My dad knew I was very afraid of dogs, so we went and knocked on the door, and he went with me, and we explained it to the owner, and the owner agreed that from 2.30 to 5.30 on every afternoon, that dog would be inside so that I wouldn't be too afraid to go deliver the paper. And my life was merry. I would go, and I would deliver the papers, and that dog was always inside, and so that went along for almost a month, and I delivered the paper to the point where I had forgotten about the dog. I just did my paper route. And then I started creating contests. How fast could I do my paper route? How quickly could I get done? Because then I could go play, right? And I would ride my bike and do this. Well, one day, even though I had all these promises, even though I had done this straight for 30 days, I go to deliver at this home, and I go upstairs and deliver that paper. I go downstairs, flick the paper to that door, and I never even notice. I just start walking away, and then I hear rattle, rattle, rattle. And then I hear... And I look over my left shoulder, and there he is, a mutant German shepherd, (laughs) the size of a horse. His teeth are showing, he's drooling, and his eyes say, lunch. (laughs) And I squealed at a high-pinched squeal that would have broken every window in this church. And I ran. For all that I was worth, I left my bike, I left my paper bag, I left my skin and clothes behind. I think my skeleton ran out of my body. I ran that hard. I ran all the way to Old Babel's Road and I looked over my shoulder and then I realized the dog was on a six foot leash. The dog was way, way back, way back, couldn't get near me, wasn't near my bike, wasn't near my my paper bag, and I looked around to see who was looking at me, because now I'm embarrassed. Now I realize I ran away from my fears. I ran away from, not realize, the, the dog was on a leash the entire time. 
This is Jesus. He says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and you are going to know my presence and I will never leave you and never forsake you. But you and I face the angry dog of marriage or family or life or friendship and all we see is the dog and we hear the growl and we see the teeth and we run and we don't realize that God is back there and he's got this thing on a leash. Going, this will never hurt you. This will never have you. I'm in control of your life. This is what God wants us to see. God, the Holy Spirit, is our paraclete. That's not just a word, it's a title. So I said to you earlier, God the Father is our advocate that sends Jesus to humanity. God the Son is our advocate that sends the Holy Spirit to humanity. God the Holy Spirit, as our advocate, points us to the truth, Jesus Christ. God the Father has said, I will save them. God the Son says, I have saved them. And God the Holy Spirit says, I am saving them and I will keep them. And so remember, God's word tells us that the Holy Spirit signs and seals us. You know what that is? The Holy Spirit signs on us, I have saved them. Then he puts his seal upon us, which says, I will keep them. Now, let me ask you, how can that not calm your heart? And when you get that, one thing I do want you to know, scholars tell us that this upper room discourse was like a, 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 what they call a, a succession of dynasty that was very popular in the first century. So in other words, Jesus is telling his disciples, I am now passing the baton to the third person of the Trinity. And so they're all a part of this. And so finally understand, folks, this means that we're on mission. When Jesus said, I will send my comforter, and he says at the end of Luke 24 and Matthew 28, and again in Luke 1, or Acts 1.8, right? You will be my witnesses when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you because all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And that is why through him that we utter our amen to God's glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, God's interest in you isn't dependent upon your current spiritual temperature. It's because Christ lives in you. Here's what I want you to do. Go home, get along with God, and tell God everything. And I mean everything. So you can hear him say, thanks. Thanks. I love you. I've got you. I'll never leave you. And if you do that today and every day, here's what will happen. You will love him in a way and be changed by him in a way that you will actually be driven to please him. And not one bit will it feel burdensome. It will actually be for your joy because he'll comfort you as our helper and our advocate because it's who he says we are. Let's pray. Father God, whoever has heard this sermon either here or online, I just pray that they'll read your word. Lord, if there's someone running from the dog, 
that they'll realize that Holy Spirit of the living God, you have everything on a leash. Nothing can happen to us. Nothing. Unless you allow it, and even in allowing it, you promise to be with us through it. Matt's been studying Psalm 23, and this is David's prayer. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because God's with me. So if there's someone here struggling with anxiety or depression, someone's been wrestling in their marriage or family, someone is struggling for friends or trying to make sense of job loss or financial setback or feeling lonely or isolated, Lord, if someone is experiencing bitterness or shame or fear, if someone is impatient, struggling to believe, God, that you care for their life or their situation, Lord, if some are running away like I was from that German shepherd, running, terrified and exhausted, and yet you love us. Oh God, show us your spirit's presence and power today. Help us to believe you and how much you love us and how much you are the one that defines us. Lord, I am not the sum total of my mistakes. I am the sum total of your love. And you have taken all of my sin and paid for it. You've taken all of my mistakes and screw-ups and transformed them. You have taken all of the things that have happened to me that were not my fault, things that hurt and bruised and scarred me, and you have taken what others meant for evil and turned it to good, and so you have placed me in your palm, and I am a child of God. And that is true of every man and woman in this room and online who will but trust you with their life. Help us see it and live that. In Jesus' name.